Welcome to Leadership Web, a podcast series from the University of Arkansas that exposes listeners to a wide range of perspectives on leadership. Through interviews with current leaders, Leadership Web strives to provide tools for you to either begin building your own or continue improving your existing leadership framework. We believe that there is no one single path to successful leadership, but that we can all learn from each other on our own leadership journeys. Today, we are joined by Admiral Mike Johnson, the Associate Vice Chancellor for Facilities at the University of Arkansas. His top five values are integrity, courage, both mental and physical, professionalism, tradition of service, and commitment. Hi, this is uh, John English and uh, Andrew Brown today, and we uh, have the good fortune of being joined by uh, Mike Johnson, retired admiral of the U.S. Navy, and also our director of facilities group. I believe your official title is associate vice chancellor, and I want to just introduce a little bit of, about the admiral. Unquestionably, every meeting I've had with Mike Johnson, I've walked away being touched by your leadership skills, and it's clear on how you accomplished the things you did, Admiral, in your career. And, and I'm afraid you're going to retire on these days. People don't know what it's like not to have a director of facilities of your capacity. To that, we'll use every minute that you remain here at the University of Arkansas and enjoy your your leadership and abilities to get things done. Most universities are struggling in deferred maintenance today, and uh, we are in pretty good shape on a, on a national level in view of who we have and what we have in view of our accommodations. And uh, as the Dean of Engineering, I want to say thank you for keeping us in good shape. Thank you, Dean English. It's been a fun ride. It's been a pleasure. It's hard to believe that almost 49 years ago, I was commissioned out of University of Colorado. Mm-hmm out of the ROTC program, graduating as a civil engineer, but heading off to the Navy. And I've had the, the distinct honor and pleasure to be associated with so many great people yes. over that period of time. That's one of the major reasons why I'm here today doing what I'm doing, enjoying it, because of the people I have been uh, very, very lucky to be associated with throughout my career. Kudos to those folks have influence on us, There's, right? Man, no one does it alone. Yeah. Yeah. It takes a, takes a great team from top to bottom and side to side and changes over time. And I've just been lucky to have been able to continue to be associated with great people yes. for, for a long time. Well, thank you, Mike. It, it's really good to hear from you today. Going into each of these sessions, uh, we've asked our interviewees to uh, give us five of their guiding priorities, their values that they've um, assimilated over the years of their career. And uh, so we use those to kind of lay out a conversational kind of description of uh, what you've learned, Admiral. First of your list, and this doesn't surprise me in a bit, uh, you, you say that integrity is core to who you are. You know, I suspect as you went through the Navy and also here at the U of A, there have been many times where you, and I've seen you, hold on to your integrity and your word. Your word goes in the bank, I know that. And so maybe you can give us maybe some, um, how you learned that to be such a critical part of leadership. I have to go back to my my mother and my father. World War II generation, not married at the time. 
dad was in the Navy as an enlisted plane captain on an aircraft carrier, and my mother was a uh, lieutenant, Navy nurse, uh, who actually deployed into the Pacific in a MASH-like hospital to uh, New Caledonia in the 43-44 uh, time frame. Dad was superintendent of schools after they were married, and he finished up his master's, small farm towns. You may or may not know, but small farm towns have their own unique characteristics and, and a lot of people doing a lot of things for a lot of people. And as superintendent of schools, he kind of had to follow up a fairly rigid path to keep everybody reasonably happy. And watching him deal with different personalities from the businessmen to the school board to the farmers that were sending their, their kids into school, and watching my mom as a registered nurse and, and a former officer, I kind of grew up with the four kids, and uh, we were married in 46, I was born in 47, sister 48, sister 49, and my brother in 1950. So we were a fairly close-knit group of four kids, but we ended up going to high school in Southern California. My last town in Kansas was 550 population. My class was 550 in Southern California between 7th and 8th grade. So I've seen the, the rich, small-town atmosphere. I've seen the Southern California, totally different, beautiful, or great schools at that point in time. So I've been well-educated, and the Navy has participated in that. A lot of that was built on uh, in, in the military. Ethics, integrity, honor, courage, commitment, they're, they're foundational elements, and People think that you're given an order and you carry out the order no matter what. Well, you also have your own personal ethics and integrity and you carry out the orders that are given to you legally and if you feel that you're carrying out orders that do not comply with your own basic foundational elements, then you should not be carrying those out and you should be able to walk away from it. There's ways you have to walk away so you don't end up in jail or something. It's been built on for almost 34 years in the Navy at a number of levels, a lot of contracting, a lot of contractors that uh, you learn from and do different things. I remember my first construction administration job at a marine base in California coming back at Christmas a couple of months after I got there and finding a fifth of bourbon laying on the floor of the pickup truck, the government truck. People thinking that they can maybe, some trying to be nice but not understanding that was the wrong thing to do, but people thinking maybe they can curry favor by a lunch or a, a gift or things like that. And, you just have to work with it. And a lot of people may grow up in a different environment as they work for you, that they don't bring that along with them, so they learn. I've had people over the years, we've had a lot of interesting conversations. Those type of things that may have showed up in different places as you're doing contracting. Uh, contracting was a big piece of it, but just dealing with uh, human beings and, and a troop leadership uh, the ethics and integrity piece not only come out, but you want to impart them to the folks out there. As a, as a mentor, and I've been a protege for a lot of folks, to, as a mentor and watching these young people grow and develop their own, their own set of ethics and integrity. Yeah. You know, as you talk about that, Mike, what I pick up is that 
Integrity is also connected to your courage. And it's interesting, as you list your, your core values here, courage comes right behind that. And you, you split that between physical and mental. And as the Dean of Engineering, I've seen you do that here too. The same principles you learned in the Navy and working with contractors. I can tell you one thing, we're fit as a fiddle in view of accommodating state statutes, not because of the statutes, because it's the right thing to do. And I've seen this boldness. So, and you mentioned mental as well as physical. And so maybe delineate those for us and see how those work together. Really, again, goes back to the military. And in this case, it, it goes back to shipboard Vietnam. It goes back to being with a CB battalion in different places. I had a CB regiment in Desert Shield, Desert Storm. A lot of people, you have the physical courage, you keep yourself healthy, you keep yourself fit, and you keep those around you fit because you support each other. But the mental aspect, you have to also keep that in the forefront. The stress, the strain, the ability to not let things push you into the ditch or push you in a direction that you shouldn't be pushed Maybe in a physical aspect, it may cause you some harm physically, but mentally, you know that the path you have to take. And ideally, they come together uh, at some point along there, but, but they're different aspects. I've seen people with great physical courage, but sometimes you're, you're looking at them and, and they're missing uh, that other piece, and uh, they, they kind of have to go together to do what's right, at the right time for the right reasons, to be able to stand up to people that know we're not going to do that, but also to tell people, but I think I know where you want to go, let me suggest a couple of other directions that don't have us skirting the law or statutes or something like that. So not just to say no, but to say no, but I've listened to you, I understand where you're trying to go, and I think we can get there, and maybe a couple of other ways. Which one of those do you, you think best for you, what you need? You know, that's, um, as you talk about that, I think that we can all relate. I empathize and relate based sometimes on when I think of the mistakes I've made in the past. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know, was there, was there a time in your life where you taught you with the big lessons that your instinct said that's in violation of my integrity and you didn't stand up and then you walked away and said we're not going to let that happen again in early in my career in the navy i was i was an ensign starting at the bottom rung i was on a ammunition ship i had a civil engineering degree but at the time vietnam they were trying to man ships so they said well if you're a you know, you're a 12 letterman, you've lettered four years in three different sports, and you're a 4-0, and all of that, then you can go to Civil Engineer Corps. And I asked him, what ship am I going to? <laughs> and I ended up on a ship with two divisions, boiler tenders and the machinist mates, and we had the main engines. I had a chief petty officer, and leading each one as the senior enlisted. And we had probably 40 people between the two groups, operating on a 1943 vintage ship, and this is in 1971 and 72, made for one trip in World War II, and we're still making trips. And we did two deployments to Vietnam, and we would move 
literally thousands of tons of high explosive equivalent ammunition, all the way from 2,000 pound bombs and 16 inch shells for battleships down to 50 caliber machine gun ammunition. And we normally were uh, alone. Well, I was 22, 23 years old. Most of them were in 17, 18 to low 20s, so we're roughly the same age. And I knew, yes sir, no sir, and they would take orders and salute. But some of them, you know, they're sharp kids, some of them mm. college degrees. And um, I fell into the trap of a couple of them, Mike and Fred, appreciating them, getting to know them. Well, Mike and Fred in, in Liber on Liberty or somewhere else, okay, that might work. But when you're back in uniform, you're off the coast, you're doing dangerous things, Mike doesn't issue Fred orders, Ensign Johnson issues Seaman Jones orders, and they have to be carried out. Not, well, Mike, I don't like that. And I got burned because a couple of people couldn't handle that responsibility, and in front of others on ship, they came up and, hi, Mike. It's very hard to walk that back, but I was, I needed to do that, and I did it. They remained respectful, and we remained, um, we honored each other's uh, ethics and integrity. They had their own, I had mine, I was able to go back and reconfigure mine to pick it back up. But it's difficult, but you learn. And later I realized that some of my senior, I had a crusty old limited duty officer who came through the enlisted ranks and was a lieutenant commander, was chief engineer. And he would sort of bring me in and shut the door, chuckle a little bit, and say, what'd you learn today? And I learned I could be honest with him. He said, and what are you going to do now? And I said, well, I'm gonna to have to go back and kind of reestablish equilibrium on what's going on. He said, okay. But he didn't put it into my fitness report. It was all part of the learning experience and developing somebody, and, and to this day, 50 years later, I remember that. And I remember doing the same thing. In the same vein, when I was commanding officer of the CB Battalion, about 650 people, 22, 23 officers, about 60 chiefs, senior chiefs, master chiefs, and then the rest, E6 and below. But as the commanding officer, I conducted non-judicial punishment. Uniform Code of Military Justice, if they had infractions, they would be charged, we would do an investigation. I literally would hold court in front of a podium. I would have the chaplain, I would have our legal officer, I would have the senior enlisted. They would come in, they would present the charges, they would present witnesses, defense and prosecution. I would, I, I would see things in advance, I would listen to the evidence, and then I would have to issue punishment. Punishment could be a reduction in rank, it could be a fine, it could be processing for dishonorable discharge. Pretty heavy things, and drugs were fairly prevalent, unfortunately. And I ended up sending five people who went anywhere from 12 to 60 months in federal prison for selling drugs to their shipmates. 
that was a very hard thing. But a little later, and in a couple of cases, 10, 15 years later, I had young men come up to me at the time who were senior chief petty officers, master chief petty officers, and said, Admiral, do you remember when you had me at captain's mast in, in MCB 40, and you chewed me up one side and down the other and asked me what I was learning, and you issued reduce me in rank or you find me. He said, from that day forward, you had my attention and I am here today as a senior Master Chief Petty Officer because of the impression you made in that particular setting when you were issuing non-judicial punishment. But it was very difficult. One young man who I ended up having to send to federal prison a few years before, as a very young seaman, had Thanksgiving dinner with my family in Adak, Alaska, when he worked for me in the public works office, and then joined the battalion. So those are some of the life experiences that, that not only formed them, it formed me, and what I did and what I had to do. And, and I gave, to this day, I will give people that I believe in and gut instinct tells me they're really good people, I will give them another chance. My batting average is not as good as I would like, but I still give people another chance because there is a human being in there waiting to get out in many cases. And those successes are worth some of the not success, successful ventures. Yeah, Pe I, people don't realize that. that in that aspect of the military, you are really judge and jury, and, and those are very, very deep emotional things that go on, and you cannot help but be impacted by them. It seems what bridges a lot of that is you have to care about the people. Mm -hmm. It's much more than a function, and you know, and I think tied into that, the third value that you you list, and it, and I. You can only imagine what it would be like working for you, but professionalism. We'll have a wide array of people listening to these, this recording someday, but if you think maybe about our college students right now, any points of guidance you'd offer them in view of, you know, how to keep them professional, checkpoints before we hit the blow point, <laughs> or when it maybe it's okay to hit that blow point when nobody else is around. Well. I watch a lot of these young kids, and I really enjoy, that's one of the things that attracted me to a higher education second career, was the opportunity to interface the faculty and staff, but also the students, and they truly do, and, and you two gentlemen know it very well. They keep you young. They keep you frustrated sometimes, but they keep you young. And. As I worked, I, I, every semester I'll go talk to the Lemke newsroom. Uh, Gerald Jordan will have me in, and I'll sit down with eight to 12 kids and spend a couple of hours just chatting, talking about projects, talking about things on campus, and then over the semester they'll call different people, me, and, and reporting and doing their projects and stuff. And as I uh, talk to them in today's, they want to send me an email, they want to ask me questions, they want to make a phone call, they want a response in an hour, and I'll make them make an appointment 
come over and sit down and see me and ask their questions. And I will ask them, tell them in advance, there is a wealth of information on our planning websites and that sort of thing. And you're going to have to do some homework. I am not going to give you all the answers. But professionalism, it's, it's being prepared. It really warms my heart to see them show up maybe five or ten minutes in advance. Uh, they're looking at their notes. They've actually looked at the website. They ask questions. They follow up with clarification questions. They send you their draft article to see if you have any comments. It's, they're building professionalism. Also making them speak and, and have a discussion. Make eye contact and have a discussion and not be looking at a device. I am very, very concerned, and we've learned in some of our Academy of Civil Engineering, and I know Industrial Engineering and others, that the uh, employers are looking for people who can write um, well and uh, sell their very creative uh, inventions and their, their uh, research products. But they can also sit down and, and speak to an audience of five or 55 and be able to sell that same thing. And we don't necessarily do a good job of doing that because we're pretty restricted on our credit hours and what classes we can do. And the only way I learned was in the military, frankly. Uh, as you progressed up, you were put into situations where you had to go speak. And you had to sit, sit down in front of contractors or sit down in front of clients and work through that. But you build that professionalism throughout a career. If, if I really, I am, and I am so sincere in saying this, if I don't learn something just a little bit new every day, I haven't worked hard enough that day. You, know, you talk about lifelong learning. Well, it's also lifelong building your professionalism and how you deal with people. This is a little trite, I guess, but leadership is so very difficult because you want to see every individual reach their fullest potential while you're around and you have a piece of that. But it's so difficult because every individual needs an individual environment to let them reach their full potential. And creating that environment for every individual is almost impossible, but you can't quit. And to me, professionalism, as you, as you grow through that and realizing it takes more than one, it takes a team, and, and you need to leave things better than when you came in and found them. And it, it grows. Professionalism is, is like a, year-round blooming flower, I think, that you just keep adding blossoms to it and it keeps growing. It's very good. I like that image. Well, continuing through the values, we've talked about the integrity, both mental and physical courage, professionalism. The fourth value you list is tradition of service. And I think being in the military, you obviously have a very strong feeling and a strong ownership of the concept of service, and we appreciate that. But could you talk about how you incorporate that into your leadership framework? Military is all about service. Service to your community, service to your nation, service to your fellow human being, your families. 
but it was also a little bit insular in that you're, you're always moving one year two years if you're lucky maybe a three-year tour when you're always going up you're trying to expand your horizons expand your experience your background your ability to add more value later but you're in a pyramid and it's up and out and at two stars that was as far as I could go and I was interviewing for AECOM URS kind of the traditional things for the Navy Chief of Civil Engineers for the Army Corps for the Air Force Civil Engineer the big companies and it's really kind of a continuation of different uniform than you were before but more travel and I was just kids were in high school and just going into college and I toyed with with higher education because of essentially you were trained in facilities management design and construction environmental housing transportation and all those things perfect fit on a different scale. But what I also have found out is it allowed us to come in here and it's six years, and it'll be 15 years next month here, it's six years was the longest place Terry and I, either married or individually, had ever lived mm. in one location. It has allowed me to experience a totally different service. I've been on the chamber of board over a couple of times for five or six years. I was able to be involved in uh, downtown Fayetteville early on and looking at trying to redo, um, regenerate the square and do things like that. I've been on the airport board for 10 years now and chaired it for a couple of years, chairing the Walton Arts Center Council right now and I've been on it for about eight or nine years. I was on Habitat Humanity Board for uh, four or five years. We actually, a couple of us created uh, the Restore, their, their little business they sell and materials that have helped keep it going. Lucky enough to be invited into the downtown Rotary the first six months I was here, which helped me get to know a lot of the business people in town. So it's allowed me to serve the community it's allowed me to meet more people. It's allowed me to represent the university to the community, which is a different face because I found a lot of people don't understand the university and aren't familiar with it, and they have totally different thoughts. I've been on the town and gown committee since it was created a few years ago, looking at other places, Manhattan and Lawrence and other places that have town and gown. So it allows the city, the university, and the community at large to come together and talk about things that go on in a town and gown environment. So the, the service kind of flipped from inward focus, looking at the military, deploying, doing that, to outward focus and looking at what can you do to offer your experience and expertise to the community. I, I chair the, chaired the facilities committee Walton Arts Center Council, I chaired the Operations Committee at XNA, and we built the, uh, the Walton Arts Center expansion. Now we're doing an AMP expansion. We did the parking deck and the concourse at the airport. So I'm able to offer some of my expertise as such to those projects, but on a great group of uh, public service people. 
the 14 members of the uh, XNA Airport represent the five communities and the two counties, two members from each of the seven. So I've gotten to know other people out in the other communities and be able to interface back and forth. So that, the service has taken on a whole different flavor in the last 15 years and, and hopefully served the university on the faculty uh, doing deferred maintenance elimination and that type of thing, but trying to stay involved and Terry and I have tried to do it from a, a donation perspective to try to share some of what we have with the uh, entities that we feel strongly in United Way, Navy, still support Navy Marine Corps Relief Society and that type of thing. So it's, it's a whole different perspective than the previous 34 years, but it's been equally rewarding and it's kind of broadened my horizon. And I think from a, a student perspective, you're also a member, and I'm going to throw out a lot of alphabet soup here, but ASCE, the American Society of Civil Engineering, NSPE, the National Society of Professional Engineering, APWA, SAME, ASPA, APPA. So, you know, students can also give back to their community and could you just talk a little bit about the importance of those organizations and that service well, as well? Almost all of those have student chapters, mm -hmm. and students need to look a, a little bit more towards the long haul, because as you graduate and go out into industry, you go to the, to the local chapters or the regional chapters, or you're engaged in the national chapter, and your network is uh, orders of magnitude expanded by your participation in that and then taking it with you as you go into industry. It gives you other ways to contact people, to build networks, to be able to ask questions, create mentors in those areas. The Society of American Military Engineers, SAME, has a very strong uh, mentor-protege program that they work uh, with the industry, with the military, with the officers and the enlisted. ASCE has a very strong mentor-protege program. That one series of papers I passed to you, the last sheet, front and back, is mentor-protege from ASCE. That and that material, every class I go to, construction management, project management, operations leadership, I did educational leadership when Paul Hewitt was here uh, in education and health professions. He had a uh, master's level educational leadership program with a lot of public school teachers and administrators. And I would pass out those same documents for leadership, mentor, protege. It's kind of how I built those documents. There are things that I have picked up over almost 50 years and kind of the ones that resonate with me, I put those down. And as I tell every one of those, those classes, I only ask you to do one thing. I ask you to go through and read all of this one time. I ask you to pick two or three things that you're comfortable with and see how it works for you. But I caution them, don't try to play a role. Because in playing a role, if you're working in, in, in a leadership role with people, they can tell when you are not being yourself, when you're playing a role as opposed to being a real human being and it's ingrained in you. I've watched people in front of military troops 
try to play a role, and you could see the troops kind of turning off because they could see through it right away. Human beings are really intuitive, and you you may think they're not very smart from a, a maybe a science or a, a some type of perspective, but their common sense and their intuitions are, are right on target. I think it's unfortunate that we try and keep these to, to 35, 40 minutes or so, because I can tell there's a lot of depth to what you're talking yeah. about. And I think a lot of these things, you're just starting to scratch the surface. So I was wondering if for your last value commitment, we could take a slightly different turn, because you sent us a wealth of information before this discussion, and you even brought to this room even more information, which is fantastic. And something that jumped out at me is that we asked you for your top five values. And in the information you provided us, you provided your three core values, you provided 11 principles of leadership, and you provided 14 leadership traits. And so we're talking about this pyramid again, where and a pyramid might be a bad word because it's all connected. You know, it's not built on itself necessarily. But could you maybe, I, I don't think we have time to go through all 25 of the principles and the leaderships, but could you maybe talk about your commitment value while incorporating some of your principles and traits of, of leadership? Commitment is such a complex, to me, a complex thing because early on I was committed to trying to educate myself but realizing that I also had to start committing to friends and colleagues and, and values different than people, but committing values to myself. As I was commissioned, it was a commitment to the unit, to the people around me, to the Constitution, because I swore an oath that I re-swore and recommitted every time I was promoted, as, as all military do. And that was to support the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I've developed the, the principles and the traits, but the commitment has to stay. And as I, as, as I found a, a young lady who became the light of my life, I made a commitment to her with, with a ring, and we did celebrated 40 years of marriage a year ago, November. And kids. And I blew that a little bit. We made a decision Terry would stay at home, which is a professional calling in its own right, to help provide stability and, and to develop two young folks into great adults, because I was gone a lot. And had I to do it again, I would have recommitted on how I balanced things uh, for the kids. Uh, when I tried to convince both the kids who were residents of Alaska, and I tried to get them to go to school in Alaska so they could be in-state, and then I tried to get both kids to be engineers, and then I tried to get <laughs> both kids to go into R ROTC, and I was 0 for 3 times 2, and, uh, and my son finally said, Dad, I've already served 18 years. Why, why do I want to go on and do more? So I, I definitely am committed to my family and my children, but um, I, I would recommit in those areas. But I think my base 
bank is a commitment to learn mm -hmm. and not be afraid to admit that maybe I'm in the wrong direction or I, I did a, a, uh, a journey off on the side that I needed to bring myself back from and I needed recommitment. I have a commitment to the University of Arkansas and I'm not even a graduate. I have a commitment to civil engineering and I get a little upset with some of those graduates that have their name on senior walk and I don't and some of the, the things they say and the attitudes they do and the lack of physical commitment sometimes. CREC is a great example and I don't have a problem with that being in the, uh, <laughs> in the, in the words. I say go Admiral. <laughs> but but um, in all of this, a commitment to continuous learning, uh, a commitment to family, a commitment to country, the principles and traits kind of flesh that out, but uh, the focus has to stay. It'll it'll maybe reflavor a little bit as you grow older and learn more. Mm -hmm. Well, I've got one more question, then I'll let Dean English bring it home. But something that's near and dear to my heart is the concept of sustainability. Mm -hmm. And I know that some people view that as a buzzword. I think it's a nebulous definition, but you have done a tremendous job on our campus here in Fayetteville, Arkansas, in implementing a very strong uh, sustainability program. And if you could perhaps share a story or two about how you went about deciding that this was an area that was of high importance, one, and then two, maybe how you use one, two, or three of your values in order to get to where you felt we needed to be on our campus? That's an interesting topic. I arrived in March of 04, the summer of 04, USGBC, I, I, when I left the Navy, we were looking at USGBC uh, lead principles and that type of thing. We were trying to do that in the military. We had the ability to do it because taxpayers... Can you define US? Uh, U.S. Green Building Council. Uh, at the time, there was also the U.S. Green Building Initiative, Green Globes. Mm -hmm. So those were kind of the two uh, rating systems for sustainability. And they were just emerging, and we were doing them in the military as I left. We uh, made a commitment here in the summer of 04 when we created our planning office to start building to a minimum of LEED certified. That summer, the Innovation Center at Research and Technology Park was the first certified LEED building in the state of Arkansas. And it was designed before I got here, and we finished it and delivered it. And two years later, in 06, we went to Silver for anything on campus major renovations, new construction, at least precepts, because there was the, you had to register and there was money and people were concerned with that. And in February of 07, John White, print, uh, chancellor at the time, was at a meeting in Denver and the U.S. college, university, presidents and chancellors, climate commitment, U.S., let's see, ACUPCC <laughs> challenge was out and 
we had an opportunity to be in the first 100 charter signatories. And John Johnson, Dr. Johnson, out of Walton College and some others, convinced Chancellor White, and they convinced me, and I, you know, I already had been working on it, to sign. We hired our first sustainability director in uh, December of 07. We were working on commitments we had made with this charter, which included a climate action plan. Our first one was approved, I think, in September of 09, at least in 09. And we developed media, or, uh, short, medium, and long-term goals, and we looked at 2040. It sounded like a long ways away, and we had a bunch of our goals. And Nick Brown, Dr. Brown, uh, was our first director of sustainability. It's continued to grow. Eric Bowles is currently in the Office for Sustainability. Marty Matlock is the executive director, now executive director, of the Resiliency Center in Faye Jones. They've taken it and run with it, and a lot of support comes out of facilities management, and we've committed fiscally, including creating the Green Revolving Fund out of our budget line so that we could get students engaged in that sort of thing. That's fantastic. It's the right thing to do. There's people who still do not believe that the polar caps are melting and water's rising. The military is looking at that, especially the Navy, because they're very vulnerable around. But it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do for our generations. I think uh, the students understand it. Faculty and staff understand it. We've come a long ways. Um, we've reached a lot of our early goals, and we've done over $50 million in energy savings performance contracts, and we're working on another $20 million package with our auxiliaries. It's a great team, again, on campus. We have a number of gold buildings, even though silver is still our, our minimum requirement. That's, that's all. That's fantastic. I, I, for one, am appreciative of that, so thank you. And, but it's been a great team. I mean, yeah. there's researchers across campus that are heavily engaged and really don't take enough credit for the sustainability and resiliency elements that they are involved in. We have a lot of talent. Absolutely. A lot of smart kids, too, out there as undergraduates that are providing leadership. Absolutely. Question about it. Well, Admiral, this is going to bring us about to the end. And a couple things I'd like to kind of wrap up with. First and foremost, as my wife is the daughter of a retired naval aviator, I'm going to have her be the first one to listen to this podcast. Because <laughs> I know she's going to love every minute of hearing what was behind you as a two-star rear admiral for our Navy. And I know that Andrew and I want to make sure we wrap this up by saying thank you for the service that you provided well, for our you. country. We don't take that lightly, and those stars on your shoulders were earned, and membership in things like the National Academy of Construction, National Academy of Engineering, are certainly earned in view of what you've done, and I know you, you, you wanted to spell that, you take that humbly, but uh, we want to thank you for your service, and we appreciate your heroic efforts, not only in the Navy, but also keeping our beloved University of Arkansas fit and tidy. So thank you for today. Thank well, and I, and I thank the both of you. and, I, and from my beginnings, educators, whether elementary, high school, or college, or whatever flavor education may take, do a huge service for this country as well. 
admire you and for what you do and, and the service you provide because that is the next generation of leaders that are going through this institution and we do a wonderful job of educating them. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining Leadership Web today. We hope that you found insight and guidance on leadership tools from this interview. Please join Leadership Web in two weeks as we explore another leader's leadership journey. Also, follow us on Instagram or LinkedIn by searching Leadership Web.